This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast with Cornell Schreiber, session number nine. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to session nine of the Build Wealth Canada podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Justin on the show, who actually managed to retire at the age of 33. This is a huge two-part interview where we talk about everything from how he was able to retire at 33 to what he invests in. And we even cover some other subjects like how to save money on vacations and how he manages his money so that he never has to work again. Lastly, he gives us some great tips that you can start applying today to retire early. You can get all the links and information from this episode at buildwealthcanada.ca slash nine. And you can also go there to get part two of this interview. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for a free newsletter so that you're the first to know when we have new expert interviews that come out. Also, I'll send you new tools and guides as they get released so that hopefully you can retire early just like Justin. And as a bonus welcome gift just for signing up, you'll get instant access to my guide on the top five personal finance and productivity tools that you can start using today for free to save you time and money. All the tools in the guide are actually free and I've been using them for quite a while and they've really made a huge difference in terms of productivity and how easy it is to invest and save money. So I look forward to seeing you at buildwealthcanada.ca and now let's get into the interview. All right, Justin, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Cornell. Uh, so yeah, just to start us off, can you tell us uh, our story? You you said you were able to retire at age 33, and that's what your your blog is about. You're telling uh, others how they can do the same. Um, yeah, maybe just tell us your story. How how were you able to to do this? Uh, sure. Yeah. So pretty much started way back when I was in high school. Um, I've always been very uh, frugal, um, good with money in terms of uh, not not spending everything that I make. Um, I've had a job pretty much the entire time since, uh, since I was 16 or so. Uh, so, so I've saved back then it was obviously not saving very much money, but, um, I might, I might, I might save a thousand dollars out of making $2,000 during a summertime, um, working during high school and, uh, just save that money. And over time it built up. Um, I went to the university, got a degree in civil engineering. Um, then I went to law school and then decided that I did not want to be a lawyer, so mm-hmm. I practiced civil engineering. Um, the salaries were a little bit lower in engineering, but I think the the uh, work life balance was a lot better. Right. Uh, I managed to have a forty hour work week uh, most weeks, so um, you know didn't have to work real late or do a lot of business travel. So so the, the it was sort of a, a lifestyle choice to go into that career over law. Um, Basically, just we saved about half our income, um, our entire working careers. Um, it, it added up, and we invested it in low-cost index funds. Um, over time, it just built up more and more and more, and uh, eventually, we had enough. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's that's in a nutshell. Um, have a decent income, save half of your income or more, and you can retire in your 30s. Mm, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's something similar to what we did as well as we pretty much put half of our uh, income, except for us, what we did is we paid down the mortgage. And so yeah. I was, uh, we were 20, uh, just before turning 29, we basically became mortgage free because basically doing that same kind of strategy, just putting away half your half your income away. So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely doable where we are as well. And, uh, it seems to, that's interesting that you had the same sort of 50% uh, target that you were going for and, and that's worked out really well for you. Yeah. And it, it got up to probably 70 or 80% in the last year or two as our, as our incomes went up, we pretty much right. kept about the same. Um, so starting out, it was, it was more, and we also had kids in, in, in that 10 year period of working. So that right. our expenses did go up some, but, right. but not as much as you would think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how much do you need to generate per year to be able to basically live the lifestyle that you want? Uh, well, I have a budget for retirement, early retirement, and it's about 32,000 us per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 2015, I gave myself a a, an inflation raise, which is only about four hundred, um, so thirty two, thirty two thousand five hundred, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's not a whole lot of money, um, 
but you know that doesn't include a lot of things that that regular wage earners have like uh, mortgage payment uh, taxes paying taxes um, we're going to manage to pay very very little in taxes I don't I don't know how much thirty two thousand dollars a year would incur tax liabilities in Canada but mm-hmm. down here with kids it's it's mm-hmm. zero okay uh, so um, but that's that's pretty much in a nutshell and that thirty two thousand covers entertainment um, travel uh, overseas travel even mm-hmm. um, use some travel hacking strategies. Um, the, maintaining our house, heating, cooling. Um, we have two cars, which we may go down to one car, but um, if we're not driving to work, we really only need one car. So, so we economize where we can, where it's not really a sacrifice. And then um, we spend plenty of money on groceries. We we don't eat out a whole lot, but we spend we make up for it in grocery spending and have, have uh, we left, like to cook a lot. So we have pad thai and um, sushi, um, all kinds of. Italian, Asian, Mexican food all the time. So, so we shop at ethnic stores and um, we spend a lot of time cooking and, and enjoy that too. But the thirty-two thousand dollar a year figure, um, it, some people are are like, yeah, I could do that easy. And some people are, are just, holy crap, we spent a hundred thousand dollars a year. How how can we can't ever live any kind of reasonable lifestyle? Right, right. Dollars, but um, a lot of it is keeping um, car expenses and housing expenses right. low, right. Um, and then not paying very much in taxes at all. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, good luck uh, living of that if you're living in uh, Manhattan, for example, right? <laughs> well, that's that's yeah. you know that's that's really the truth is that we live in in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is uh, four or five hundred miles south of New York City, mm-hmm. and it, it's really um, New York is as different to Raleigh as Tokyo is to Raleigh. I mean, it's it's a it's an entirely different uh, world. Costs are different, especially with real estate. I mean. Um, we have, we have an 1800 square foot house and they sell for $150,000 roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's a regular house in a regular neighborhood, um, a few miles from downtown. It's not that, that sort of thing in, in Manhattan though, would be, I don't know, $2 million, $5 million. I don't know how much 1800 square feet would be. Um, but the point is that the, the, the cost of living varies so much between, um, some areas like New York city and then, Ninety percent of the rest of the country mm-hmm. uh, is the the cost structure is much much less for sure. Yeah, that seems to be a a pattern that I'm I'm seeing when I read others that have retired early, like you know Mr. Money Mustache, for example. I remember you've probably been on his blog. He he talks about the importance of that as well. And, and yeah, for sure. I mean, if like in our case, it would be Toronto's kind of the common example where well, you know, if, if you're living in downtown Toronto. Yeah, your your costs your cost of living is going to be huge, and it's really difficult. So it's it's it almost seems like if you do want to pull this off, you do have to strategically locate yourself in such an area where the house prices are lower, but you're still able to generate that sort of decent income. Like in our case, there's no way we could get. Uh, the house we have now for 150. I'm, I'm actually a bit jealous of <laughs> that. You're 150. That's amazing. So, so for you, you're like, oh well, you guys paid off your mortgage by uh, by 29. That's uh, you know, that's like 150 thousand. That's that's not bad at all. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I've heard about the real estate prices in Canada. And yeah, it's yeah, it, it's. I mean, there are places in the U.S. where it's the same way where that are easily double here. And I see people talking about in, in the Northeastern U S around Boston and New York and New Jersey, that area where, you know, two or $300,000 is sort of the bare minimum. If you want to be near the, near any, any of the cities and not way out in the country somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, and there, there are areas of Raleigh that are just like that. We just happen to live, um, in the part of town that, that, that isn't $300,000 and up for a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, and part of that is just choosing where you want to live within an individual city and, and making the most of that. Um, if we were going to live in a high cost city like New York City, um, we'd probably be scrimping on housing and, and, and in a two bedroom, 600 square foot apartment or something. Exactly. Um, and the kids would have bunk beds. Uh, but you know, I just, I always say New York City is a great place to visit, but not as much to live. And I, th- I think most people with families would agree, at least as to Manhattan, um, outside of it, you know, there are pros and cons to living outside of New York City. But mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, yeah. It, but it's, yeah, it comes down to what do you want to get out of life and where do you want to live? And, and, uh, it, do you, do you appreciate, do, do you get a huge benefit out of being in a big city where they have 10 times as many museums as you can visit in a month? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, you can always fly there. It's it's four or five hundred miles away. It's not that far to fly or drive or take the train. Exactly. And I, I imagine those museums might get boring after you've been living there for a few years. So uh, in our case, what, what what my wife and I would do is we would just go to a different country or, or a different city. And, you know, you see the museums there and you see the attractions there. So every time you go on a vacation, you you see something new, right? And that's a lot cheaper than paying Manhattan real estate prices, for example, or, or Toronto real estate prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we, we went to New York this summer. Uh, we actually drove to Canada and stopped oh, along yeah. the way. In, in Philadelphia and New York and uh, uh, on our way up and spent a couple of days in New York City. So, you know, we got to experience the subway and, and ride around mm-hmm. and check out museums. And um, we, we sort of saw the fireworks on the 4th of July, our Independence Day down here. Right. But I got to say, uh, Montreal's fireworks festival is much better than New York City's 4th of July. Fireworks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we ended up in Montreal and they happened to have the fireworks festival and we were staying close to the river. So we got to see that, and that was pretty awesome. That's amazing, yeah, yeah. That seems to be, that seems to be a good strategy. Yeah, just just to enjoy, just travel and then see things, and then go back to your home where it's not so expensive uh, to live on a day to day basis, essentially. Yeah, and, and you know, if you think about, if you analyze what you do on a day to day basis, um, if you you can read a book sitting in your on, on your sofa, exactly. Here, exactly. <laughs> Um, you can go out walking on greenway trails or hiking, uh, where it's low cost of living. And, and I don't personally spend a ton of time in museums, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, playgrounds or activities for kids are, are pretty much the same wherever you are. I mean, you can only get so much value out of those different things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if, if you pick a lower cost of living area that still offers a reasonable quality of life, mm-hmm. um, it, it's to me it's not really a sacrifice at all. And, and in fact, there are a lot of positives to it. And the fact that we're only uh, four to eight hours drive to um, New York, Washington D.C., uh, maybe a little bit further to Boston, mm-hmm. and flights are an hour or so. So it's not that it's not that far away, really. Exactly. Yeah, I always thought that if if you're going to be living in a big city center like Manhattan or, or Toronto or you know any place like that where the real estate is so expensive, you better you better be pulling in that really really high salary to be able to offset that increased cost of living. And if you're if you're not pulling in that kind of salary, then hopefully you're really you have some amazing job where it's building your portfolio. It's you know so that in the fu- so it's like an investment, and that in the future you're going to be able to get that you know really high paying job, that kind of thing. But if if you're not, if you're just kind of living there and you're living a right, just have a kind of a normal job, um, then then it's you know you're really it, it's it must be really tough to save and, and then to pay off your house. Uh, so it's it's better just to look <laughs> to a lot less expensive areas um, because I hear that a lot uh, here in Canada, right? People say, well, I live in Toronto, there's no way I can pull it off. You know, well, I'll say, well, if you're living in Toronto, you should be earning a pretty big salary to help offset that. And if, if you're not, well, then are you sure you should be living in Toronto? Maybe there are, I mean, you know, here there are plenty of other cities with really high paying jobs. It's not like there's only high paying jobs in, in you know, in Toronto. So, um, yeah, so I just, I see a lot of people kind of get, um, sort of get the shaft that way where they think, oh, we have to live in this expensive city just to get a job. But often that's not the case, I find. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true, and and the I think that the in the United States the regional differences in pay, it, I don't think it in general I don't think it compensates you for the mm-hmm. the huge spikes in cost of living, um, in some of the big major metro areas. Um, the exception to that would be if you are in uh, finance. Right. New York City is probably one of the best places to be, mm-hmm. and you can make three or four or five hundred thousand dollars right. if you're working with a big bank. Um, you'd probably make half of that or less in virtually every other big city. Um, maybe some of the ones in California, maybe you, you might find a job somewhere else, but in general, in, in middle America, um, it, you'd be making half of that. So, you know, if you can economize in a high cost of living area, you can certainly mm-hmm. um, have a shot at making a lot more money. Um, same Silicon Valley for tech workers, uh, San Jose, um, San Francisco, that area. Uh, there's there's just so many more opportunities to move around to different companies or to work for a startup that can get big and make you tons of money. Uh, those sort of opportunities, it's harder to find uh, those those type of tech jobs. There's just a different culture environment um, elsewhere, but but even places like Raleigh or Austin or Atlanta or Nashville, I mean, lower cost of living areas that aren't 
that where it's not a million dollars to buy a tiny little three bedroom house. Exactly. Uh, there are areas like that in the U.S. Um, so I think it pays to to be mobile and pay attention to your cost structure wherever you're living, and and you know does it really pay off if your goal is to um, maximize your earnings and minimize costs? It may pay off to to locate somewhere that's low cost of living but still offers um, great job prospects. And then there's always the, the environmental aspect. Do you like where you live? Um, maybe you love the weather on the West Coast. Maybe you love the weather. Uh, maybe you love the winter time, so you want to move move north. Um, it, it, it's it's there's a lot of factors in it, but I think that it, it's hard to ignore the costs of where you live compared to what you make. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I find Canada's pretty pretty similar in that regard as well. You'd make more in Toronto, for example, but. It, it, I find it's not that much higher, at least from what I've seen, to completely offset the increased uh, in cost of living. Unless, like you said, you're live, you know, we have Bay Street, right? And it's the say, it's uh, same kind of thing. If you're an investment banker, then sure, uh, that that would be the exception to the, to that. Um, and for sure, there's outliers and exceptions, but but I find generally that's kind of the case, uh, at least from what I've seen. It's just it, it it's not worth it uh, unless you want to live there for the lifestyle. Um, piece right and, and that's that's kind of a whole nother discussion altogether now we're now we're talking more lifestyle as opposed to just money <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so you mentioned investing in index funds and that was your your key um, now uh, so when 2008 happened you must have taken a pretty pretty big hit so can you talk a little bit about that how, how did that affect you uh, I imagine that you know emotionally that must have been a rough a rough time uh, <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe yeah. speak to that a little bit more for all of us that fear the next crash. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it was it was a it was a scary time, but I think a lot. Of, I think half the fear among everybody was just fear mongering. I mean, we're we're afraid of fear itself. Where you know, if, if you think about your finances day to day, I had a paycheck, my wife had a paycheck, we only spent half of those paychecks. Um, we had money in the bank. We had hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, even at the lo- very lowest point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in terms of, were we going to lose our house, or were we going to be on the street, or destitute, or starving, or none of that was ever a, a, a reality for us. I don't, I, you know, it, it was scary losing probably close to half of what we had uh, in investments and watching day after day of, of large one percent or more losses. Uh, on the way down, uh, but if you step back and think about it, well, you know, you have a job. Now, some people lost their jobs. I mean, our, our my company um, laid off a quarter of the workforce and then um, froze wages and actually cut the wages temporarily uh, across the board. So, I um, mean, it, it was scary from from that perspective. In, in that, my company was hit so hard, and um, so I, I was I was sort of thinking, well, I'm, I may lose my job. Uh, but then we knew, well, we, we spend so little that we can make it on one income just fine. And we have our investments to provide an income, a small income at the time. Um, but we could we could live off of the investments, too, and uh, and sell those if we need to, because that's sort of our quarter of a million dollar emergency fund back then was our, our investments. Um, so I just kept investing, though. I just kept automatically piling the money in every month through um, through our, our 401ks down here, uh, 401k and IRA investments. Um, so most of my investments were all automated in terms of where the money's going and, um, it takes the, it takes the emotions and the psychology out of it when it's just coming out of a paycheck. Um, you know, I'm used to seeing a certain level in the paycheck and, and all the investments just happen in the background. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to think about, Oh, well, should I wait until next week or next month to invest this, this thousand dollars or this $2,000? Because what if it keeps going down? I don't want to buy it too early. Well, I didn't have to even face that obstacle because it was just it was an autopilot um through employer deductions and i i'd set up um an automatic recurring monthly investment to my vanguard account um just to take that psychological emotional side out of the investing so mm-hmm. pretty much just kept investing all the way down to the bottom in, in march of 2009 and then um i was shocked that it went up so quickly after <laughs> yeah. but yeah. i was fully invested so it wasn't you mm-hmm. know it wasn't I wasn't regretting it. I was, I mean, I was happy at that point Sure, uh, that things were doing so well. So when you saw those, those big drops occur, I mean, one of the things I remember you mentioning on your blog is that 
basically, the, you know, the stocks became on sale essentially, and so yeah. you started buying them up, which which makes complete sense. Now, did you have some way of determining of okay, this is a significant of enough of a drop that I should start buying them up, or not? Did you not even really go into that kind of thinking or analysis because like you said it was all automate you've set everything up so it's automated so you're automatically investing that money every month so you're just consistently investing the same amount and and basically not worrying about the the timing mostly the latter uh, I, I i never set aside any money to wait for stuff to go down um i i think i, I convinced myself probably three or four different times that this was the absolute bottom and and there's no way to go any lower mm-hmm. uh but but that didn't really impact the decisions I was making just because I, I, I didn't know when the bottom was going to hit. Um, I mean, uh, I think when it first started going down a lot, I was actually on vacation at the beach here in North Carolina. <laughs> I hope and, I didn't uh, ruin it uh, too much. <laughs> no, not, not at all. I mean, it, 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 you know, I was to the point where I think it went down 7% in one day. Right. Uh, so, but it's just a number, you know, it's just a big red number number on the on the on the browser uh, yeah, look at this number. Yeah. i'm just like seven thousand dollars times you know let's i don't know we had maybe three hundred thousand dollars then so i was like okay well that's we just lost twenty one thousand mm-hmm. dollars turn the computer off go out to the beach hang out and have fun <laughs> that's right you know, it, it, what's the point of wasting your your vacation when uh <laughs> you can't do anything about exactly. it you know? and, and this was all it wasn't like this was money that we had to live on immediately this was this was long-term money that we were spending, this was 2008, I believe. So this was money that I knew we would be spending sometime five to 10 to 15 years out at the earliest for early retirement. And a lot of it, we wouldn't spend until we're in our fifties or sixties. So it's, it's just a, it's just tons of money that you lose and you make, but it goes up and down and it fluctuates. And I, I think, I think that the, the sooner you can get comfortable watching yourself lose 10 or $20,000 in a day, and ju- just sort of say, okay, well, I'm just going to turn the computer off and go outside and play and do something fun exactly. because it's it's a long term, you know, it's a long term game of, of years and decades and not not of day to day. At least, I mean, how I manage it, I, I I've looked at it as long term buy and hold. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've bought, you know, on day one or, or the first year of investing, um, I still hold the same funds, same investments. Um, haven't sold. Uh, other than rebalancing a little bit here and there, haven't sold hardly anything. Right. So, yeah, yeah, I, I find I find that uh, that mindset ups a lot. What I tell myself whenever there's a some sort of drop or fluctuation in a in a negative sense, just just say it doesn't matter really because I'm in this for the long term, and so it really it, there's it's useless to actually worry about it. And just, so, just reminding yourself that this is long term. This this doesn't really matter right now in the present time. Uh, I, I personally, me that that's that's what helps me kind of get through. But mind you, I didn't experience the uh, the 2008 uh, in the way you did. But I, I find that's a good uh, thing to tell yourself when uh, everyone's saying the sky's falling and <laughs> sell everything, right? It was it, yeah. I mean, it was. I think the most challenging part was going to work every day and listening to people around me and and the and the company uh, management. Oh yeah. Just, just freaking out, and because I mean, they're all listening to the news, and they're listening to um, Kramer, Jim Kramer on Mad Money down here, and the CNBC, all the um, the business channels. They're watching all this stuff, and, and they're just freaking out. Right. And, and uh, I mean, I, I'm assuming they're they were as financially solvent as I was, if not more, because they own the company as a small engineering company. <laughs> right. Uh, but but they're you know they're worried about the dollar disappearing and and uh, money market accounts. L- losing half their value overnight and and uh just i mean a conspiracy theory level of worrying about stuff and i'm just kind of like it's not you know it's not that bad it's really this is a great buying opportunity for for everyone um but but just listening to that negativity and that worrying and, and fretting over everything um i mean I, I could i could tell at that time that it wasn't really as bad as they were all thinking it it, it was but Mm-hmm. Um, but that that is a challenge to kind of close your ears and, exactly. and just keep on doing what you're doing that, that you know long term will be the right thing. Exactly. Yeah, I, I remember that uh, that had a pretty big impact on me. I, I remember I was pretty much fresh out of school, uh, university when it happened. 
And I remember, I'll never forget my, uh, it kind of scared me from investing for a while. Uh, and, and it's what contributed me to just going, let's pay the mortgage down quicker. Uh, because I remember uh, when, on the one day, I remember my director just kind of freaking, you know, not freaking out, but he was, uh, he was obviously, you know, not, not in the happiest mood because he said he, he just lost 30 grand in a single day. <laughs> and so obviously, you know, when, when you hear things like that and you're, and you're just fresh out of school and you're, you know, you're not as educated about uh, how the markets work and, you know, long-term investing and all that, uh, that sounds really, really scary. And I remember that kind of got me scared of the markets for a bit. Now it's a completely, completely different story now that I've, I've actually spent a lot of time educating myself over the years. But, uh, but I remember, yeah, those, uh, <laughs> those can be discouraging times for the new investor for sure yeah and, and it's i mean you gotta just gotta get used to making and losing money day to day and I, the way i look at it is is not necessarily did i lose thirty thousand dollars yesterday because that actually happened i think last week or two weeks ago um but the the bigger thing is hey if i lost thirty thousand dollars i still have 1.3 million you know and take some zeros off for people that are just starting out i lost three thousand dollars but i still have one hundred thirty thousand um, dollars. If you focus on what you have left, it's it's huge compared to what you just lost. Even even if there's a, a massive uh, one day loss, um, you, you still have most of what you started with. Right. Um, so and, and I haven't ever experienced like the the October nineteen eighty seven crash. Um, here it, it was I think twenty three percent, twenty four percent in one day. That would be pretty scary, um, but. In terms of, you know, what am I doing tomorrow? Well, I mean, if I have any cash laying around, I'm probably going to throw it in the market and try to invest it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but it's, it, it, and it's, it's paper and it's paper losses until you have to sell your investments. And, and if you're trying to build up an investment portfolio to live off of in early retirement, um, you're talking about 30 or 40 or 50 years worth of, of savings uh, or, or to live off of for 50 years. And so you only need three to four percent of that per year, um, so you got to get comfortable with losing within a, a day or a few days or a week. You're going to be losing um, a year's worth of expenses within a week, um, probably once a year. It's just going to happen. Right. You're going to get back over the long term, uh, but but that sort of volatility. Um, if you can't handle that, then stocks are probably not the best place to put your money. Um, you know, you got you got to get the right kind of investments in there. Otherwise, you're going to end up panicking and selling after it goes down, which is the exact exact opposite of when you should sell. Exactly, exactly. Now, yeah, you meant actually, uh, yeah. Before we go on, I remembered you, you mentioned uh, putting money in your RRA and your 401k. So, just for our, our Canadian viewers, uh, that's basically like our RRSP and our TFSA. Um, so, so the Roth is based. The Roth versions are basically like the TFSA. Um, and the um, the more traditional um, IRA or the four the traditional four hundred one k that's basically like our our RRSP. So okay, yeah, yeah. RSP RSP is you get a tax deduction, and TFSA is you pay tax on the money, but then you put it in, and it grows tax free. Exactly, and when you withdraw it afterwards, it's it's tax free essentially because you've already paid tax on it initially. Whereas RSP is more. Um, it, it's it's more like your traditional um, IRA or your four you know your traditional four hundred one k where you're not taxed you get to invest it right away uh, and it can grow it can start compounding um, pre tax but then when you take it out then you get taxed um, right. yeah so so basically just so so what to what you were saying before essentially you were uh, trying to max out your four hundred one k your IRAs you're, you're trying to basically pull that to the to the max just to shelter them from tax let them grow. Um, as much as they can, basically. Yeah, and and I don't know. I know the tax brackets and the tax structure is, is somewhat different in in Canada. But just to give a kind of a quick overview of of how it worked here in the U.S., this may carry over some to Canada. Um, we always knew our incomes were a lot higher while we're working because we're 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 working and earning enough money to save half of it and spend half of it. So we knew our expenses in retirement would be half or maybe a third of what we're, what we're spending while working. Uh, so we always said, well, okay, we can basically pay close to no tax in retirement, and we can wait 20 or 30 years to pay that tax. Right. And in the meantime, save that money on taxes and invest it and use that to grow and, and pay that future tax as we need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So yeah, we just saved everything we could in these tax deferred accounts to take uh, a tax write off, and and paid very little tax while we we're working. Even even when we had a hundred thousand dollar, hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar combined incomes, um, we paid almost no federal income tax. So it it got us out of taxation while we we're working. Um, and there's other taxes here, like our Social Security payroll taxes um, and state income tax. That it's hard to avoid those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, I mean, we did still pay probably ten thousand or more, while in our highest earning years for all those all those other various taxes right. um, that are almost impossible to avoid uh, if you're working if you have an earned income. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, the whole the whole idea was we're going to be making a lot less money in in retirement. So let's let's take the money from our four hundred one ks and IRAs in retirement, our RRSP equivalent uh, in retirement. Because then our taxation will be zero percent or close to zero percent. We have a ten percent bracket uh, for that. That's the that's the first income tax bracket here. So um, I'm, I'm just like, hey, I can fill up that ten percent bracket and still do way better than than if I was paying twenty five percent while I was working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll have, I'll have to get some um, Canadian tax expert uh, accountants on the show and see. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them that you intrigued me with these strategies. And uh, is there some sort of Canadian? Um, equivalent because yeah. some I, I know for sure there are differences between the, you know the four hundred one k like well, basically with the tools you guys have in the states and in Canada. So even though we kind of have the our RSP and our TFSA, which is kind of the the most comparable thing that we have, there are some some differences between them as well. I believe so. Uh, yeah, we'll have to I'll have to save that for uh for for our accountant interview and uh, and we'll see if if, <laughs> if we can employ some of what you um, of what you employed in the U.S. here in Canada. Yeah. Um, that sounds good. I don't know. What's that? I'm not an expert. I'm not a, I'm not a Canadian tax <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't expect you to be. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be you'd be very a very interesting person if uh, on your spare time you uh, are researching Canadian tax laws while living in the States. I yeah, definitely wasn't wasn't expecting you yeah, to know that. But um, yeah, no, that's that's something for sure. I'll have to get some um, some pros on the show here in Canada. Uh, who specialize in that kind of thing? Um, because yeah, that, that for sure, taxation is such a huge, huge component uh, of your expenses, right? And and if there's a way to to legally minimize that, uh, for sure, it, it's definitely worth looking into. It's it's one of those kind of eighty twenty uh, you know principle rules, right? Where it, it can really make a huge, huge difference. Um, so yeah, it, it saved us around twenty thousand dollars a year by taking advantage of all these tax deductions and tax oh, breaks. Yeah. And totally legally, I mean, it's, it's right. not anything out of the ordinary. I mean, it's out of the ordinary in the sense that a lot of people do not take advantage of it or cannot mm-hmm. take advantage of it. But, um, so that's that's real money. If you compound that over 10 years and and save all that, save all the difference and then invest that, then, you know, you, you can end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars just from paying attention to taxes. For sure, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's not the most exciting subject, but it gets exciting when you get to keep your money. <laughs> <laughs> for yeah. sure, for sure, yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, going back to the um, uh, when you're talking about 2008 and and, and the market drop and and the basically yeah the, the stocks were on sale. Um, it was a good time to buy. Did you do? Did you just? Did you basically use any sort of leverage? Did you borrow any money? Um, to invest more during that time, just because you knew that you would be getting a really good deal since you're investing long term. Um. I I did not. Um, all, all I had was just our, our earned incomes, mm-hmm. and I mean, we, we put pretty much every penny we weren't planning on spending that month right. uh, into markets, and we were investing as much as we possibly could. Gotcha. Um, and, and we we didn't really have any cash emergency emergency fund on hand at all. Um, so in that regard, we were putting everything we could in. The the only I, I very briefly thought about. Um, getting very highly leveraged by um, <laughs> applying for a lot of credit cards and, and taking cash advances, like maybe a million dollars worth <laughs> and, and putting it all, putting it all in the stock market right. on, on, on with, with options or some other just crazy, ridiculously leveraged investments. Right. Um, with the idea being, I either go bankrupt or I make money dollars. Right. And, uh, and in hindsight, I, I probably would have made, I think the timing would have worked out where I probably would have made a million or two extra Wow! if I can get the million dollars to start with, which credit was pretty easy, um, leading up to this. <laughs> so, I mean, it may have worked out, but I don't, I don't know the timing of it exactly when I had this crazy idea. So, I mean, if I bought too early, it could have easily 
gone to zero and then we would have to file bankruptcy. Right. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, that was the idea I had at one point was to just borrow as much money as I possibly could. And if I can't pay it back, well, file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided not to do that. So, <laughs> right, yeah, and, and uh, for all the listeners to the show, we're, we're we are definitely not recommending that you take on massive credit card debt to buy <laughs> as many equities as humanly possible <laughs> and, yeah, in anticipation yeah. of the market going up. What What really made me think about it was the way that 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 debt, the attitude towards debt, got really funny back in '08 or '09. Um, people. The real estate bubble bust back in, I guess, 2007 or so. And so people in California and Las Vegas were buying up um, just any house they can find. And they were getting they were getting free money from the bank, borrowing at excellent terms. And they had liar loans where you basically could just get this money with no money down. And so people were borrowing millions and millions of dollars. And, and their underlying real estate would go up, um, you know, even if it only goes up 10 or 20%, if you have zero down, you're right. 100% leveraged. You have <laughs> yeah. no money in the game, so your return on investment is infinity. Exactly. And, and then when the market crashed and the, and the, the uh, real estate values dropped, these people that had these loans sort of just walked away from them. And, and uh, there was, in California, there's actually no recourse against, um, some, some borrowers don't have, the, the lenders do not have recourse against the borrowers, so they could literally just walk away from mm-hmm. from those loans. Um, I think that's limited to the primary residence, but but basically there was an incentive there to to borrow all the money you could, and then hey, if you couldn't pay it, walk away, file bankruptcy, whatever. But maybe you can make a million or two million dollars first. Right. So that was sort of what generated that idea in my head of of this is just a you know from a purely financial instrument standpoint. I'm right. not saying ethics are right or wrong. Uh, I was just observing what people are doing in the market to potentially make a ton of money with tons of risk. Uh, and, and with the downside risk being that you just go bankrupt. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it would have been, the outcome would have been I would be bankrupt if, if I would have done that, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, just to give some background on where I came with that mm-hmm. idea. Uh, but it's, 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 in general, it's a very bad idea. Uh, unless you have no assets and you really don't mind cheating banks out of a million dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, now, Let's talk about asset allocation a little bit, because um, basically, what was it before you retired, and what is it now? I, I assume you've modified it a bit just to give it a bit more lasting power, and, and and to kind of shield yourself from volatility, since you're actually using that money to live off now. Can you can you talk a little bit about your asset allocation before and, and after, and then what changes you made to it? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of went against the general advice of getting more conservative in retirement. Uh, during my investing years, working years, I, I was 100% equities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, I, we had around $3,000 in our checking account on average at any given time. And that was just to pay the bills for that month um, because our paychecks were coming in. And we always had a surplus every month. Um, so I was 100% equities and very, very little cash uh, while working. In retirement, I stuck with pretty much the exact same asset allocation, 100% equities. So I still have um, virtually everything invested in, in equities. Okay. Um, th- there's probably a few percent of, I think I have a bond. I think I have one bond that, that will be my 2017 living expenses. Um, other than that, um, I have a, a roughly a one to two year cash buffer that I use. Um, and so, you know, is, is that part of my asset allocation? Well, I don't really consider it to be part of my asset allocation, but the reality is I can go a year or two without having to sell anything from my uh, investment portfolio. So yeah, it functions as a, as a, a buffer to volatility in the sense that if values drop tomorrow or about 30%, I would just live off of the cash and I wouldn't sell any investments. Right. Um, if, if the values went up 30%, I'd, I'm going to be selling um, some more investments to raise some more cash just so that I can stretch that cash buffer out even more. Um, and I, in fact, right now I have some limit orders in just to raise uh, another six months to one year of living expenses um, just because I don't know if we're at a top or not, but I figure um, why not go ahead and get the cash locked up so that I can have my 2016 living expenses sitting there in cash. Right. Okay. Uh, so, so, so it's sort of, I'm just taking it a year or two at a time mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and getting myself through the next few years. Uh, now, if we have another prolonged downturn, um, I'm going to end up selling equities at a loss. Um, 
there are ways to get around that by spending less money, um, getting part-time work, uh, ramping my blog work up more, mm-hmm. um, spending more time on it, um, doing freelance writing, going back to work full-time. I mean, those are all potential outcomes that could that could help me avoid um, spending for my portfolio in a, in a down market. And, you know, I'm 34 now, so it's not like I'm – I'm never saying I'm never going to work again. I may. I don't know. I may get bored. Right. Um, but but the, I think it would have to get pretty ugly before I would go back to work um, full time. So especially when you're used to not going to work. <laughs> yeah, it, it, would be, it would be a big it would be a big crimp yeah, on the lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, what is this commuting thing you're referring to? This doesn't. <laughs> you do I mean, what every day? You drive to work. <laughs> it's only about the commute here is about ten minutes, so it's not. Oh, okay, it's, it's, not, not, it's not bad then. <laughs> But you talk to some people that you know commute for forty five minutes an hour or more every day. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's interesting. So basically, it sounds like what you do is you, so so you've got the money, it's or the the equities, they're 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 growing right now, and then when you f- see that the prices are kind of where you'd like them to be, where you can sell them at, at a pretty nice gain, then every once in a while, when that happens, you sell some of them off to basically secure a certain number of years of, of retirement, essentially. Um, yeah. In a, in a nutshell, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not trying to time the market as much as I like to keep about a year or two worth of cash. Right. Just sitting there to fund gotcha. the next year or two of living. And I, and I think it's, it's probably more psychological than, than hard numbers based or analytically based. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just helps me sleep at night. If I know that, you know, we're going to have enough money to live for the next year or two right. without, in cash without worrying about selling things after they've gone down or, or timing when I'm going to sell that. Or if a large expense comes up, uh, a big lumpy expense comes up, like if, if we have to replace a car or something. Right, right. I have the money sitting there in the account and I don't have to worry about, you know, what am I going to sell to fund this or what am I going to sell to, to, to get us through this big expense period, even, even though it's a one-time thing. Um, so it, it, you know, for me, for me, it works. And, and if I had a, a larger bond allocation or any bond allocation, really, um, I wouldn't need, feel like I needed as much cash laying around, mm-hmm. but just because of the way it's mostly equities, um, that, that ends. Um, so, so between the cash on hand and the dividends that we get, um, that, that is basically our, our living expenses for the next few years. And then that cash bucket will be topped off from, from selling equities, hopefully when they've appreciated. Right, right. Okay. So do you find yourself, now that you're in retirement, do you draw off on the balance? Uh, basically, do you take money out of your principal now as well? Or do you try to make it so that you're not drawing on principal, you're just living off the dividends or the interest, et cetera? Um, so far I haven't sold anything out of the account. Uh, but, but like I said, I, I have a limit order in right now. I'm trying to sell right. some stuff. So if the market goes up a few percent, um, that will represent my first, uh, sale from, um, from my, from my, uh, investment portfolio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so the goal is to, to just live off the, uh, to not draw basically down on the principle at all. But then in your case now you're kind of, you're going to do that a little bit. But, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now that you're okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll have to sell some of the principal, mm-hmm. um, over time, but, but part of that is the tax strategy because I, I, I have about a quarter of our net worth is in brokerage accounts, taxable accounts that, that we can access at any point, um, without any kind of penalty. Okay. And so I'm going to be living on that for the next 10 to 12 years probably. And then doing some other, fancy tax work that I won't get into for Canadian viewers um, <laughs> on, on the tax deferred side, the our RRSP equivalent um, to, to funnel that into the TFSA type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's what I'm doing behind the scenes. But in terms of our living expenses, it's all sitting in a taxable brokerage account, what we're going to be spending the next 10 or 15 years. So. Okay. Okay. So how did you decide that? Okay. This number that we have now in our accounts, this is enough now for me to retire on. How did you, can you take us through the, the thought process that you went through to basically say, Hey, I have enough to retire. Let's, let's do this. Yeah. It, I mean, it was a, it's a process that that took me a long time to get to. Um, and basically I worked in it from what are we spending now? Um, when, when working, what are we spending now? 
and then taking out uh, work-related expenses, uh, commuting costs, um, nicer clothes, um, keeping up a nicer car that's reliable so we can get to work, uh, any lunches out, uh, professional dues, uh, anything like that, expenses that are related to work that would go away when we retire. So I took what we were spending, minus those work expenses, um, and then added in the extras, the fun stuff, like a bigger travel budget. Once we have time to travel more, we want to spend more money on travel. So we added in uh, a travel budget, a bigger travel budget, beyond what we were spending before. Um, we added in some for health care, um, just because the, the employer-provided health insurance here uh, goes away when you retire, so you have to fund your own, um, which is pretty moderately priced now with our Affordable Care Act um, at the income levels that we're at. So um, anyway, I took what we were spending, took out work expenses, and then added in the extras that are related to retirement expenses. Um, added all that up and tracked expenses for uh, the last four or five years and figured out that we're spending, um, we were, the core expenses were around 24000 a year after taking out work expenses. Mm-hmm. Uh and then we added in about $8,000 more to cover uh, health care, dental care, um, travel expenses. So, so we sort of – it means a very analytical method of determining what we're spending. So then we get $32,000 a year. Um, then you figure, okay, you can spend – there's a, that 4% rule you, I'm sure you've heard of. You can spend 4% a year. Well, that's, that's more if you're spending for about 30 or 40 years. So if you look at it, probably 35 to 3% is closer to what you can spend if you're in your 30s and planning on hopefully making it 50-something more years. Um, so if you're looking at a 50 to 60-year retirement period for planning purposes, um, we use a 3%, uh, a 3% withdrawal rule. Okay. So, okay. Um, so yeah, you, you take 3% of a million dollars and you have about what we're spending each year. Okay. Uh, and, then, and then we added some extras in there to cover college expenses, um, some some other some other one time expenses that we expect in the future. A lot of that's kid related. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know we, we're not we're not going to have kids kid expenses forever to to infinity. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of those we treat as lump lump sum expenses that we're going to have to pay eventually. So we needed more than a million dollars to fund thirty two thousand dollars a year living expenses, just because there's some big lumpy expenses in the future um, related to to college and other other child costs. Right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So you just said, okay, three percent. That's what we're withdraw. That's the safe withdrawal rate from our portfolio, so that we're not drawing down the principal or or, or barely drawing it down um, to make it the most sustainable um, for the long term. Uh, that, that that that's basically that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and, and okay. if, if you look at the the dividend yield on the portfolio, it's probably two and a half percent, roughly two point two five percent. So if we're spending three percent. We're spending slightly more than what the dividend yield is, mm-hmm. but just because of the, the tax structure of where we hold it, we can't just live off the dividends. Right. So we are, we're selling we're selling some stuff, but yet we're also reinvesting dividends elsewhere. Okay. Uh, but but like like our, our dividend yield our our dividends last last year added up to about thirty thousand um, dollars, but only ten thousand of that were dividends that okay. I could touch. The other twenty thousand were in retirement accounts that. It didn't make sense to touch them at the time because of the tax consequences. So, so we're down to that point now where we're basically living off of the dividend yield from our portfolio. Um, the there's a pretty good chance that 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 thirty thousand dollars per year will grow over time um, to the point where it'll fully cover what we're spending and maybe even more. Mm-hmm. It just depends on you know the, the sequence of returns and how the market does and and how earnings grow that sort of thing. So, um, the goal never was really to cover all of our living expenses with dividend income, but it's just because of the way the math works out, we're spending so little as a percentage of what we have that um, the dividend yield does just about cover our living expenses. Okay. So you're saying that covers most, almost all of it and then sort of the, the difference you get just through your sort of tax-efficient planning, essentially? Is that kind of the gist of it? Well, it's sort of, I guess it's really, we can't, we can't access all, all that thirty thousand dollars per year of income right now, so we can get about ten thousand of it okay. in our taxable. The other twenty thousand of dividend income, it gets reinvested. So we're we're basically, to, to use an illegal phrase, laundering money from from our. I mean, it's not illegal or anything, but but we're making twenty thousand dollars in our retirement accounts, and then we're investing that in in twenty thousand dollars of of new stock we're buying. Mm-hmm. 
then we're selling twenty thousand dollars of stock in our taxable account. So we're so we are selling principal in our taxable account, but we're also buying new principal in our retirement accounts. Okay. Okay. So so, so the net is that we're if if we can spend thirty thousand dollars a year and make thirty thousand dollars in dividends, mm-hmm. the net impact will be we have the same amount of principal that we're not selling any of the principal, but. I mean, we are to fund just because of the tax structure. We are in the taxable account, but not in the tax deferred accounts. It's it's sort of complicated to explain right, it. Right, right, yeah. And then yeah, yeah and then it might not apply to Canada either as well because I don't know how we'd have to get like I said a, a tax pro to. <laughs> to yeah, do it, but... it's very specific to where our money ended up and how much is in tax deferred and taxable accounts, and so it's. Mm-hmm. I think it 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 really you know it's just very unique to our situation right. of. And it's con- it's pure um, coincidence that we happen to spend about what our dividend yield is mm-hmm. uh, right now. That was never really an explicit goal, but it's certainly I think there's some peace of mind that we get from knowing um, we could just try to live off the dividends um, and, and, and you know move money around here and there to 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 access those dividends. Sure. But if we can do that, then we can live off the portfolio essentially indefinitely. Okay. Uh, because. Dividend fluctuations are much less than than the portfolio value fluctuations are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. Uh, oh, and when you said when you when you're collecting the dividends, are those from dividends from your index funds, or did you start buying individual companies now and collecting dividends from those? It, it's it's all index funds. Okay. Yeah, we we never had an explicit dividend focus in our investments. It's just the between the the U.S. based index funds that tend to pay a little bit lower dividends. Um, and then we have a lot of international investments that tend to pay, um, significantly more dividends. Okay. It just averages out to, um, I don't know what 30,000 on 1.3 million, whatever that is, it's less than 3%, but between around two and a half percent to to two, I think it was 2.25 in 2013 and, um, maybe two and a half percent, 2.75 percent in 2014. Okay. The yield. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of the interview with Justin. You can get part two of the interview and the show notes at buildwealthcanada.ca slash nine. So just the number nine. And while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter so that you're the first to know when new expert interviews like the one with Justin get released. And of course, as a bonus, you'll still get the top five personal finance and productivity tools that you can start using today to save you more time and money. Lastly, if you are an iTunes user, I'd definitely appreciate if you gave this podcast a rating. It helps a lot in getting great guests on the show like Justin. The more listeners there are, the more guests want to come and join and and be part of the show. And so I definitely appreciate you leaving a review to help make the show more popular and help attract better and better guests. Also, if there is a particular guest that you would like to see on the show, or if you have any sort of personal finance or investment related questions, feel free to let me know as well at buildwithcanada.ca. And I will do my best to get your question answered and bring in anybody else that you'd like to see on the show as well. All right, so thank you in advance and talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.